and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. You sometimes hear me say this phrase, the ordinary means of grace. There's so much to that phrase because this is the time when we are together. This on Sunday morning when we are together, we've prayed, we've worshiped God, we've We've commissioned elders today. We've sent missionaries out. Um, We've lifted God's name and who he is and what he has done. And now we turn our attention to this. The exposition, the explaining of the word of God concerning the word of God and our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? This is one of the ordinary means of grace. Now, in saying that, we don't somehow mean that this grace is ordinary. No, 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 it's, a, it's amazing grace. But what we mean is that ordinarily, the main way God's grace is poured out to us is through the preaching of his word on Sundays. And then taking the passage and the meaning preached on Sunday and diving deeper into that word on your own and in your D3 groups. It's why I beg you for your own sake, don't miss church unless you're sick or you're out of town. But because this service, this ordinary means of grace that comes from the preaching of God's word each and every week is so very important to the lives of every believer. Now with that in mind, let's go ahead and get something to take notes with, open our Bibles up, or even the Bible app. Do we have that uh, QR code? Can you throw that up there? Um, So you can uh, be able to do that. Uh, You just aim your phone at that. Let's open our Bibles up to the Gospel of John chapter 6, and we'll dive in. Shall we? Well, we can never pray too much. Let's go to God in prayer as we just ask for his blessing on us today. Hmm. God, this is an amazing week. I'm just humbled by what we get to see up here today with the worship. But God, we turn our attention now to your words. We have spoken to you. We've sung about you. But God, we we want to hear from you, God. We want your words to penetrate to the very marrow of our bones. That you would take these words and grow us. God, I, I lift up the, the brand new Christians in the room that are just you know, learning what this is all about. And God, I lift up the, the spiritual parents in the room that, are, that know what it's about. But everywhere in between, whatever spiritual growth, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and grow us up. God, we pray for uh, you to come into the lives of those that are spiritually dead right now, that you would wake them with your words by the power of your spirit. And God, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen. Well, last week we began our study of John chapter 6. Remember, it's a long chapter with five different scenes, 71 different verses. And what's so fascinating about chapter 6 is that all the little scenes, even though they appear kind of diverse at first glance, they actually fit together perfectly to show who Jesus claims to be. 
And last week we began with the first 15 verses of that to cover the feeding of the 5,000 men. Or we could say 5,000 households is really what we are talking about. So we're talking 20, 25,000 people. To remind us, we could think of just the first 15 verses like four different parts inside that first 15 verses. First, you have the fickle crowd, the 20, 25,000 people that were seeking what they could get from Jesus instead of seeking Jesus himself. They wanted gifts from Jesus, not the giver. And second, you have this faithless uh, set of disciples who can only see the problem and not the provision of God at that moment. But then verse 15, we see this false coronation where they want to make Jesus king. They want to take him to Jerusalem by force and make him king. And again, they wanted what Jesus could give them instead of the relationship with Jesus personally, which is by far the greater thing. And we won't get there for a while. I'm thinking probably April. But you need to know that at the end of this chapter, uh, when we hit verse 71, what started out with 20, 25,000 people going, let's make Jesus our king. What Jesus tells them at the end of this chapter will turn this giant crowd back into just 12 followers and just a handful of other people. The church from its beginning, listen to me, comes until Jesus comes home and takes us to heaven is always consisted of the crowd and the core. The crowd seeks the benefits of that, that Jesus offers, but not Christ himself. The core though, they seek Christ, the pearl of great price, worth more than life itself. They'll do anything. By the way, this brings up a very important topic we won't dive deep uh, into now, but let's just touch on it. Just, just touch on it, which is hard for me, as you know. It's amazing, by the way, I'm Paul Trimble. Uh, it's amazing that at the end of the chapter, when Jesus will claim to be the bread of life, the only one still following him uh, will be the 12, the called, the confused, but committed disciples. The crowds simply walk away from Jesus in disgust and unbelief. And I'm getting ahead of myself, I know. So if last week was the overview of the first 15 verses, let's drill down into the faithless disciples this week. There's some richness here that we've just got to get to. So if you're able, would you stand with me in reverence to the word of God being read publicly? I'll read aloud. You follow along. Here it is, starting in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a, li- get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Remember, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, other than the resurrection 
Now we find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and right here in the Gospel of John. The miracle or what the Apostle John describes as a sign of this small boy's lunch of five barley loaves along with two fish being used to feed twenty to 25,000 people. It's massive in its significance for the total number that it affects. Now, not just because we read about it in the four Gospels, but because of what it reveals to us about who Jesus is. Now, the Apostle John points to the significance of feeding the multitude, I think, more clearly than the other Gospels. But all four Gospels come together to give us this kind of 3D view of the significance. They're all recorded from their slightly different vantage points. And Matthew and Luke, they seem most intrigued with the actual miracle itself. They describe the miracle and not much about what the meaning is that we find in John. Mark, on the other hand, he brings out this compassion of Jesus to the people. Listen to how Mark describes this in Mark 6.32. And they went away in the boat to, to a desolate place by themselves, describing the same thing. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, got, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, and he be, uh, began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Right after this is when Jesus says, how are we going to feed these guys? So in Mark, we see this compassion of Jesus for the crowd. But it's in our passage that we read today as our main text that we see why this miracle is so very important. And what I want to actually specifically concentrate on today is the aspect of the story of Jesus testing his disciples. Make sense? Now we're, we're going to look at this today, God willing, the next couple of weeks together because it has some powerful implications of how we personally can respond to Jesus and this, this bent tree discipleship pathway that we're going down. And specifically, the opportunity that we have when Jesus allows us to go through a time of testing. Times of testing can be difficult. I didn't get an amen on that. Time of testing can be difficult. And we all face them, don't we? This is one of those uncomfortable topics to talk about. It's in these times of testing that our faith is proven to be true and strengthened or proven to be false. That's a different story, different sermon. But what I want us to realize, and I've got you writing down a lot of stuff, so write this down first. Times of testing come from the Lord in order to refine who we are. Times of testing come from the Lord In order to refine who we are. Now the Bible. Both the Old and the New Testaments together. Show the regular process of God. Allowing impossible tests into our lives. So that we have to depend on him. He allowed those obstacles into our path. 
We can call these trials, if you would like. But what's the point of the trials? Now, kind of two things I'm going to give you two. Is one is to refine us. That's for us. Ultimately, it's for his glory. Amen? But that's even a different sermon there. Let's, talk, let's focus in on our refining. Like when you take a precious metal and you refine it, you heat it to the point of melting so that the impurities are brought to the top, lifted off that metal so that what remains is pure. Or we could say it is holy. Now, that refining of God in our lives, although never easy, there's some comfort we can take in into account. Because the refining fire is a loving thing to do to us, his people, because it means he's not leaving us as we are, imperfect, but making us into something better, something more like Jesus, holy. That reminds me of the story of a young man who's watched as a master blacksmith was sorting piles of scrap metal. And he asked, what determines which pile you put that into, this pile or that? And the blacksmith replied, he says, I can tell by looking at the piece, if I heat this up with the fire, will it be useful for my purpose or not? And if it's not, I just simply throw it in the scrap heap. The young man thought about it. And he prayed right there, God, put me into the fire, not on the scrap heap. You get what he's saying? The apostle Peter says this at First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, in this life, in other words, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In many ways, this miracle, the testing of the disciples, and then the rest of this chapter becomes this turning point in Jesus' ministry. A turning point in the sense that It's in this event that Jesus declares that he alone is the bread of life that satisfies men. There's no one else, no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Preaching like that will get you crucified. It's not coincidental that John points out that this took place right before the Passover Passover feast. You remember that? God allowed all these people to descend on Jesus and his disciples just at the point that the disciples were hoping for some rest, some R&R. But what I want us to see here is just like Jesus' appointment of meeting the woman at the well, there is nothing left to chance here. This is not a chance encounter. There's nothing coincidental in the providence or we could say the plans of God. That's what providence means. The timing of this appointment with this crowd is, listen to me, finely tuned with the Passover so that Jesus could test his disciples. Now, Jesus had anticipated this situation. He planned on it. Let's think through this. Watch what he does with each of the players and their reaction. Here it is. Verse 5 of John 6, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, he's addressing Philip specifically, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said, to this, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. This situation is no surprise to Jesus. He set this thing up. 
Now, something I want to point out here is that when I hear the word test, I kind of get some cold sweat. The bad taste in my mouth. Any anybody else a bad test taker out there? Now, you, for you teachers out there, I wonder if you view this differently because it's your profession. I hated taking tests. I'm not a great test taker. Uh, they were stressful. You had to study for them, or at least you were apparently supposed to study for tests in school, and therefore that's why tests were so stressful on me uh, because the test would reveal not just what I knew, but probably more important, what I didn't know. Now, that's important to understand as we grow in Christ Jesus and we travel up this mentree discipleship pathway we've been talking about for weeks. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to be tested, but we don't want to be tested, right? As we are helping each other along that pathway, The tests, the trials show the maturity that we have attained. But even more, the tests show us that we are still lacking in areas. But that's not a bad thing. If we're wanting to be made more into the image of Jesus, we want the Holy Spirit to complete us, right? Right. And what happens in the lives of most Christians, including me, I know this is true in my own life, and in the lives of people I've helped along the discipleship pathway, is that when life seems to be going well and I have faced nothing difficult in my life for a while, I began to think I have attained a higher level of Christian maturity than actually has occurred. Are you this way? When that happens... I tend to start letting my attention to my spiritual walk with Jesus grow lax. I don't tend to pray like I should. I don't tend to spend time in God's word studying on my own like I should. I may even think that I don't need all this extra Christian stuff that I do, meeting with people for accountability and Bible study. But then, listen, a wave comes of difficulty and tests me, it hits me, and I realize I'm not yet complete in the person God has changed me, is changing me into. The testing revealed the truth of my maturity, or rather, the lack thereof. Now, earlier, we made the note of times of testing come from the Lord in order to refine who we are. We can rest in that these trials are no surprise to God, but here's what we also need to realize about these as we go through. Write this down. God specifically designed our test to make us into the holy creation that he intends. Write this down. God specifically designed our test to make us into the holy creation he intends. This may mess up your view of God, doesn't it? The tests of God reveal what we have attained or in our spiritual growth and what we've not yet attained. The test of God confirmed the good work of the Holy Spirit of God has done in our lives and then it exposes the fake stuff. And what's strange is that before I'm tested by God, I can really think some areas of my life are pretty mature, that I'm, I'm going to be okay. And then they turn out not to be. 
And on the flip side, I can find out that the areas that I thought had no spiritual maturity, actually there was some spiritual maturity here. Without test, God has allowed in my life, one, without the test God has allowed in my life, one, I would never willingly test myself. I just wouldn't because I avoid perceived pain. Do you? Do you remember years ago there was that picture of the guy in the gyms, the guy all fit and ripping his shirt off and, and it was like no pain, no gain. You remember that years ago? And, and then there was one, I saw this guy that had more of a shape like me, more of a safety shape, you know, and he was taking his shirt off and said, no pain, no pain. <laughs> I like that. Without test, I would not allow myself to be willingly tested because I, I avoid pain. And two, I would never grow, have grown in my faith. Now, honestly, that's why we can praise God in the storms of life that he allows. Although the tests God allows may seem random, they're not. They work according to his providence. There's that word again. His plans and his purpose. By the way, once you begin to believe that and get that down, you can begin to stop your worrying because God's got you. Amen. And that doesn't mean that life's going to be easy, but that God is a God who has a plan and is sovereign in his power and ability to pull off that plan. According to the text that the crowd didn't ask to be fed in verse 5, Jesus sees their need both physically, spiritually, and he has compassion on them, Mark says. Well then, since that is the case, we can view these tests not as something that we have to endure, but rather God's way of developing Christ-like character within us. You see, God is more concerned with the conforming us to the image of Christ idea than assuring our temporal comfort. Let me see if I can give you something to think about. The more mature you become in Christ Jesus, or you could say the more holy and refined and more complete you become through um, the trials, the tests that you go through, and you depend on God, and in those trials, God gets bigger and we get smaller. Now, this is crazy to think about. This is what scripture teaches us about how God works in the lives of people like, think about uh, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David, uh, Moses, John the Baptist. I mean, you name the apostle, uh, in every God-ordained trial they endured, they realized how much bigger God was than they thought and how much smaller they were than they thought. One of my favorite book series is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Any big fans here? I quote them a lot. I love, in the book, Prince Caspian, when Lucy, you'll remember, Lucy Pevensey returns to the land of Narnia for a second time and she sees the giant lion Aslan. She wraps her arms around his giant neck as far as her little arms will go. Now, if you've never read the, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is this lion. He is a Christ-like figure in the story, okay? After hugging Aslan, she backs up and says, Aslan, you're bigger and he says in this low voice, he says, that's because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you're bigger. I am not. But every year you grow, 
you will find me bigger. Do you see what Lewis is portraying here? As we grow more mature, we find God gets bigger. He doesn't change. It's our view, our ability. By the way, there's no limit to that truth. God is infinite and getting to know an infinite God will always be a joyous thing as we begin to see him for who he truly is. To know him more clearly enables us to love him more dearly. But don't miss this. The troubles of life we face. The trials that God allows into our lives through his providence are, look, instruments he uses to grow us like a chisel of a master sculptor's hands as he carves beautifully detailed sculptures and statues. And God is removing the parts he doesn't need and replacing uh, that part, revealing the true finished masterpiece that is inside the stone. And yet these pieces that he chips away, they hurt. (laughs) They hurt. Like spiritual barbells, trials become these spiritual ways to lift and grow our spiritual muscles. We begin to see how helpless we are in the grand scope of things, but how wonderfully powerful and awesome God is to cause all things to work together for our good and his glory. Amen? And the amazing thing is that when that happens in our lives, when we can't pass the test without relying on God, but then when we do rely on God and then we pass the test because God is there, God gets the glory. Okay, let's see how the doctrine I've just laid out for us works out in this passage. We'll look at the other character soon, but let's concentrate on Jesus' interaction with Philip. You ready? Why does Jesus turn to Philip first? We don't know for sure, but we can kind of guess. Philip is from Bethsaida, which is near there, the closest bigger town. This is kind of Philip's home turf, as it were. So it's kind of natural for Jesus to turn to Philip and say, hey, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? Now, we looked at how ridiculous of a question that was. We'd need semis worth of food that they don't have. I mean, Philip would know where to buy food, wouldn't he? But that's, but what's the problem here? There's no places to buy food. So if this is how you respond to Jesus when he asks you to do something that seems impossible, see if this is the case. Philip is caught in this thing we call knowledge or really the lack thereof. He might have even been proud of the knowledge and that Jesus would even ask him what to do. But we know from verse 6, Jesus asked Philip to test him. Jesus is testing him. Because the, remember, when Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information for him. The question is for us. The trial is for us. So Jesus asked the question, Philip, where do we buy food for all these people? Is your response like Philip? Let's put it into our world for a moment. Say a bill comes in the mail. There's not enough money uh, in the checking to cover it. You panic. What do you do? Do you panic? Do you wring your hands? you worry about it? Do you stay up? How in the world am I ever going to pay this bill? Man, I've been there. I've been there. Does it keep you up at night? 
Does it turn into a nameless anxiety? Do you get depressed over it? I just described one of the sins I've wrestled with in the past. Or, or do you take it immediately to the Lord? Do you pray about it? Do you give your problem over to Jesus? Do you see what I mean? Now listen up. Let's go a little harder here. Let's say your children are making really bad decisions. What do you do? Or let's say even your child is sick and it doesn't look good. Like they may not recover. In other words, they might die. Or say your marriage is in the tank and you think, I don't know if I can survive this. Do you throw up your hands and say, why God is this happening to me? Or do you take it to the Lord? Or are you, are you tracking with me? This is where we live, folks. The apostle Peter gives us this prescription of how to give our worries to God. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 5 or 6. Humble yourselves. That's the first step. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now check this out. One of the signs of growing faith in Christ Jesus is when you can take your worries to God and leave them. One of the signs of growing faith in Christ Jesus is when you can take your worries, your troubles to God and leave them. I have to do this daily, sometimes multiple times a day. Now, I'm not saying that you simply try to forget about the problem, play like, oh, this thing's not happening. It's not really here. I think I'll just go eat some ice cream. But rather, it's to take it to God in prayer, pray through it often, pray through it in detail, refusing to worry and to work through the problem with the expectation that you are going to see God move. But check this out. You may expect for God to move in one way, and in actuality, he might move in some completely different way than you would ever have guessed. The problem might not go away or be resolved how you uh, want it to be resolved. But to trust God that he is in control no matter the outcome. And that he sees what you are facing. And to know that he is working in the problem there. Are you with me? I'm saying that. That not turning to fear and to worry and trusting in the providence the plans of God and saying I don't know what to do here God but I know you do so I'm going to give you this thing listen praying and giving your worries to Jesus is one of the best things you can do to both grow your faith and to pass the test plus it gets rid of the worry can I just give you a hard truth but a good truth can I give you a hard truth Here it is. This is going to smack you. The amount you choose to worry is in direct proportion to that you choose to not trust Jesus. I told you it hurt. The amount you choose to worry is in direct proportion that you choose to not trust Jesus. Now, that's a hard but true statement. 
So what keeps us from giving stuff over to Jesus? What stops us? One is we simply think we know too much. This is kind of funny. You'll get what I mean. We simply have the pride of knowledge. That was Philip's thing, wasn't it? (laughs) I mean, he's probably flattered at being asked by Jesus, the ruler of the world, how are we going to feed these people? Here's something that I think God must find amusing when he brings us the test of life. Maybe not. I, I just think it's funny. When we show God how knowledgeable we are by thinking we can take care of our problems without him, we are actually revealing our ignorance. I'll give you a moment to write this down. When we show God how knowledgeable we are by thinking we can take care of our problems without him, we are actually revealing our ignorance. One more time. When we show God how knowledgeable we are by thinking we can take care of our problems without him, we are actually revealing our ignorance. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not somehow arguing that we shouldn't gain knowledge because it can be a big blessing. It's one of my favorite things about my job, getting to study the Bible. But knowledge can actually handicap our trusting God. Here's what I mean. Hang on to this. I know I'm having you write a lot. Knowledge placed in Jesus' hands is valuable. Amen? But when we trust our own knowledge instead of Jesus, it's a barrier to faith. Knowledge placed in Jesus' hands is valuable, but when we trust our own knowledge instead of Jesus, it actually is a barrier to faith. Now, you can see why Philip failed the test, can't you? Not only did Philip have the knowledge of the area or the lack of food, and places to buy it, lack of money. He also had apparently a head for numbers. My wife, Bibi, can do this thing. She can simply do math in her head. I, my friends, cannot. I think of math as some kind of like dark art. That I never got that thing. Like it's a dark magic or something. But Bibi's really good at that. That's why she's a CPA, a top CPA. Philip apparently simply looked at the crowd. He's good with numbers. He sized it up. He did some figuring in his head, that dark magic thing. You can almost hear his thoughts. He goes, okay, there's 10 there. There's 10 there. There's like right, that area, that area. Let's look at this crowd. Then he said, okay, if uh, everybody got just a little tiny bite, that's like 10 cents. Then he put the equation all together. He's got, okay, carry this. And he said, that wouldn't be enough to feed everyone, even if we gave Eight, 12 months of salary, Jesus. Have you ever done this for, for God? Like you have a, a test that God gives you, maybe one that you were not particularly wanting to take and you do some fast figuring for Jesus and you just kind of let God know, sorry, God, your plans for my life are not going to work. Thanks for checking. You see, Philip had calculated the need, but he calculated without one variable that was the most important, Jesus. I've been a member of the church my entire life, and much of my life I have served in some 
kind of capacity as leadership. I'm convinced that a major thing that holds the church family back from becoming what God has called us to be and designed us to be as a family is uh, from carrying out the functions of the Great Commission is this kind of thinking. That as a church, we get it all figured out and then we ask God to accomplish our work that we figured out for him. And, and then we say, if you'll just, God, if you'll just provide enough money here for us, whoo, you know what we could do for you? Now, don't get me wrong. God does work through our giving. Like Pastor Hunter was saying, money is a powerful gift that God uses, he gives us money and then we use it in ministry, right? In other words, just like we talked about with knowledge a few moments ago, if we place our, our money into Christ's hands, money is well used to build the kingdom. And we can agree on that, right? But here's where I have often fallen into this false kind of thinking. And that is to think that all of our problems, all of our needs will be met simply by collecting enough money. That's a false, it's a dangerous way of thinking because like Philip takes Jesus uh, out of the equation. On top of that, it limits the way we see God working. And not just in the church, but in your family, in your individual life. If we simply say, God, I will, if you'll give me enough money, then I'll be okay. It's almost like saying, God, if you'll give me enough money, I won't really have to bother you anymore in prayer uh, because I really won't need you to do anything else. I can buy what I need. Thanks. We can be thinking that I'm going to do this big thing for God by raising up money to help him get the job done. But that's not a big vision, is it? Philip says eight months of pay won't be enough to get, give them all a little tiny taste. But Philip is thinking about how big of a pile of money he would need just to do that. You can see it in his statement. Just to give them a little bite. That wouldn't give them a bite. But Jesus is going to do something much bigger than give them a little taste. Philip could not imagine the banquet, the feast he would provide. He wasn't going to just give them a taste. He was going to give this, them a feast like they had never had. Now relate that back to your own life, even to our own church or your D3 group. Is your prayer too small? Is your vision for your life to reach the lost too small? Have you put expectations here when they should be here? Like, are you praying, God, if you could just give this, do this thing for me, just this little thing, then I think I could get probably the rest done for you. And Jesus is saying, all your calculation, it's all wrong. You see, I want to bring something much bigger into your life than you could ever imagine. With Philip, Jesus is saying, look this, don't let the amount of your resources limit the vision God has for you to accomplish. At first, this sounds like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? It's not. It's where the prosperity gospel goes off. Don't let the amount of your resources limit the vision God has for you to accomplish. Bentry, I'd say that to you as a church. Like if I stepped out of my role as your senior pastor, I'd say, man, don't let 
your building or your money or anything tell you what God needs to do in you or God wants to do. We've each got to learn individually, but we've got to learn that as a church family as well. We bring to God our resources. We bring to God our knowledge, our ability, our money, and we say, God, would you use this to build your kingdom? And we humble ourselves. I don't want my vision, God. I want your vision. Do you see what we're doing when we pray that kind of prayer and that kind of expectation in our hearts? We are looking to God to see what he is going to do. Philip had this vision of feeding thousands uh, with a tiny bite, but Jesus had the vision of bringing something so much bigger than Philip could ever have dreamed of. Now, we might say, but Philip didn't know what Jesus could do, but on the other hand, Philip had already seen him do Hundreds and hundreds of miracles over the previous year and a half. I think about um, what he must have witnessed as we've studied John. I mean, Philip had seen Jesus change hundreds of gallons of ordinary water into wine. The wedding in Cana. He had seen the government official's son be healed. He had seen the paralyzed man get up off the mat and hundreds more. But when we talk about Jesus working in another's situation, it's one thing, isn't it? But it's quite another to believe Jesus can act right now for me in this situation that I have right in front of me, right here, right now. It's like we say, I know what you have done for other people, Jesus, but I don't think you can handle my problems, actually. As believers, we walk the discipleship pathway. We see God working in powerful ways through the lives of other believers, don't we? And when we read about how God worked in the Bible, and we see how God reached so many people through quite ordinary people, we don't really allow that information to apply to us, do we? Like, it's fine for them, God. Thank you for working through them. But then we think, but it's different for me. Why is that? Why do we seem to go to that point instead of believing that God can still work through us? Here's the truth. There are no limits on God and his ability to carry out his plans. Not even you. You're just not that big. If you think of all the stories in the Bible where God has worked through ordinary men and women to accomplish extraordinary things, know that God can still do any and all of those things and so much more through you. And here's the thing I think we can rest in. I think we can take comfort in this. When God allows trials into our lives as tests to refine us and grow us, watch for it as an opportunity to see God move not only in your life, but in the lives of the people in your sphere of influence. They may look at your life and they go, look at the trial that guy's going through. He went through bankruptcy. Well, that guy used to be an addict. That, that guy right there, Man, he was a total screw-up. And yet God works through him now? Because let's just face it, life's hard. It's difficult. But the great news for believers is that God is in control. There's nothing left to chance. We serve a God who has a providence and the 
ability to pull off his plans at the very same moment that that gives us as Christ followers the opportunity to rely on Jesus and watch for his power and might to move in our lives. And then to let his glory be seen by how we respond and then how God moves through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I look at on these faces of the people I love, people I don't know, one thing, God, that I am amazed at is all the ways people hurt. And to see you work in that hurt. Got to lift up people facing financial problems right now. God, would you use this to grow them? Help them to respond in faith. Got to look, uh, look at all these people. And I know people that are dealing with cancer and medical problems that just won't go away they just and they've begged for them to go to away, go away but you've said no this is a test God I, I pray that you would heal people in this church but more importantly God I pray that through whatever health thing they're going through or financial that you would grow them and you would get glory through this God, I pray for just a little bit of a vision to see how our trials are shaping us and growing us. God, help us to be faithful. God, I lift up brothers and sisters to you right now that are facing an insurmountable obstacle in their life. God, thank you for the obstacle because we know that you are a big God. We pray that you show us how to pray. And God, as, as we face that, it would glorify you and that other people would be brought to you through our obstacles. Listen to me. If you are not a Christian, look up here for just a moment. All you other Christians, just, you just keep praying. Have you come to the end of yourself? Maybe you've gotten to that place where you go, I can't go on anymore. Maybe you've even thought of ending it all. I know this sounds crazy, but God is in that. Because once you get to the end of yourself, that's when you can turn your attention to God. You see, the only way you can be saved is by believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So here's what I would like you to do. Turn your focus on Jesus. In other words, the obstacle, you can let that go away. Turn your focus to Jesus. You go, Paul, but I can't go on. I, I don't know. May, it doesn't matter. Turn your focus to Jesus. Believe on Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. He has paid your sin. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, 
His death on the cross has paid for your sin. Your sin, not someone else's. Your sin. Now, He has purchased your freedom from sin. You no longer face hell. You no longer face eternity separated from God. Jesus has bought your freedom. So this is what you do. Say, Jesus, you can have my life. Just even hold your hands out. There's nothing magical. Just hold your hands out. Jesus, you can have my life. Here it is. Or, or maybe it's like you, you give him the little keys to your life. You say, just as a symbol, just here's the keys to my life. You make the decisions from now on. You've got a lot to grow. You've got a lot to learn. This is the place to do it. We'll help you in that. You believe right now. God, we thank you for those that have believed that are following you. Help us as a church to take these baby Christians and to grow them into uh, young children, then adults, then uh, spiritual parents, God. Grow us all up in you. We thank you for the trials that we face. We give you these and believe on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing one more song? Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.